Today's edition of the podcast is brought to you by CoachMe Plus. CoachMe Plus is the leader in athlete management software and a product that I've been lucky enough to be using for a little over a year now. Only rivaled by the impeccable customer service that Kevin and his staff provides, CoachMe Plus's ability to constantly be amoeba-like in their ability to mold and, and matriculate what you're trying to get across and bring together is, is absolutely fantastic. Their constant pursuit of better ways and better methods and, and innovations and progress to their own product is absolutely fantastic. Go over to CoachMePlus.com. Check out what they got, guys. It's, uh, it's something that I guarantee you won't be disappointed with. In today's Applied Sports Science Minute, Coach Me Plus' Kevin Davidovitz gives us a little background and questionnaires on where you can start with your athletes. Well, we're going to talk about uh, wellness questionnaires now and how they can be a very easy tool to uh, basically apply sports science principles to your program, um, both cost-effectively and in a way that makes sense. The one thing that we find with wellness questionnaires is we get a lot of objections as to whether or not they're valid. Um, the research that we point to is McLean, and uh, basically he correlated, uh, his group correlated um, wellness questionnaires with uh, objective indicators like counter-movement jumps and whether or not the actual fatigue values that they were getting back in the wellness questionnaires fit with the objective measures of the counter-movement jump. Um, there are a lot of other ways of capturing questionnaire information. You see Brunel, Palms, Brums, T TQR, uh, rescue, DALDA, a lot of these are a lot more robust and large and I think uh, might be good in a quarterly or a, a larger setting but when you're trying to get into a daily routine and actually look for changes in an ongoing basis you want to have something that's small, light and can actually be um, answered with uh, a few questions. So again we point back to the McLean which is uh, based on the foundational research from Hooper and McKinnon. Um, and basically you end up with five questions and these five questions have a scale of one to five with one being the lowest five being the best uh, you know fatigue for instance one is low five is uh, not fatigued at all and the questions that we ask uh, include fatigue levels sleep quality general muscle soreness stress and mood level and in best practice like you know in theory it, it looks good but in actual practice this works well um, teams that actually do this and pull this off are getting really good value out of it. So how do we do this? Well, we can do it with paper, we can do it with Google, um, you can do it in Excel. There are a handful of small app companies that have them. Um, some of the larger um, athlete management platforms have them as well. But really the key that you want to do is you want to get the athlete understanding why we're answering these questions and, and uh, provide the immediate intervention if something's going wrong. So you take those scores as they're being answered and actually um, act on them. So if an athlete's fatigued, if an athlete has muscle soreness or whatever that might be, um, you immediately provide an intervention for them so that they understand that if they're giving you information and they're trusting you with that information that you're doing something in return for them. Um, we're going to do a part two on this and actually get into how we can score these values. I think the biggest mistake that we're seeing right now is a lot of organizations take the information and they simply score the raw value, one through five, with a max score of 25. So 25 must be best. Well, that's not always the case, and we'll get into that in the next part.
To get your weekly dose of applied sports science updates, go to CoachMePlus.com and subscribe to our weekly newsletter. That's CoachMePlus.com. And in today's episode of the podcast, I get to sit down and talk with Unbreakable Performance Center's Brett Bartholomew. Brett and I are going to talk about training fighters and building relationships, guys. Uh, Brett's going to get into managing, building, and preparing fighters and working within all these different camps. Uh, and, and the whole idea of having like nine or eight or whatever different coaches really fascinates me. So listening to how Brett talks about how he fits into these molds and, and these different camps with these fighters is really cool. I was really appreciative of, of his candor in these situations. Talks about the methods he's using right now to monitor his athletes, how he sees his past locations and everything he does today. And that's awesome, man. You know, seeing a guy who's been at so many different locations on so many different levels and different environments and how they've all led him down this path was was really cool to hear. Uh, You know, and then we talk about how he gets into fighter circles and, and, you know, that trust is really equal to buy-in. He he really gives an awesome uh, example of, of being able to get more difficult people to buy in. Um, and then we talk about individualization and how it needs to cover more than just programming, guys. It's uh, it's an absolutely awesome talk. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Let's get right to it. Thanks Brett, so thanks for being on with us, man. We appreciate you having uh, appreciate you coming out and talking with us today. Yeah, my pleasure, man. So with the new venture and, and, and everything, let's, let's talk a little MMA right now. Let's talk about what you're doing with your fighters and, and how that's going and everything's progressing out in L.A. Yeah, thanks, Jay. So uh, with any of the fighters that come in, you know, it's such a unique kind of population. I still think that we're at the beginning of really kind of revolutionizing, and I will use that term, uh, everybody in the field, whether it's, you know, Lauren Landau, you know, a number of the other great coaches, Shara Vengeance, just people that are really trying to train fighters in the right way, because it's a population that in the past has kind of fallen victim to, you know, what they perceive to be fight-specific training. And, and that term is always overused in any sport, right? That, that specificity aspect. And they've been advertised to and marketed to so heavily, whether it's the, the masks and the tools and the gizmos and the circuits. So uh, what I do isn't really sexy. You know, it's a combination of just base principles and getting these guys to understand it, right? Ground, ground-based, multi-joint, multi-planar movement, you know, we use a mixture of both linear periodization models, you know, classic block or even flexible nonlinear with all the, the different aspects that they have to manage. Because when we talk about altering behavior and managing stress, to me, with all the sports, and I've, I've been blessed to work with 23 sports, this sport has the most variables that you really have to manage, the most stressors, the most, I mean, these fighters are so depleted. And so when you watch them do these things that, you know, people post online, it's like, Why? Why when really, you know, a simple push-pull or total body-based program and, and more simplified way of attacking ESD would do, would do them so much good? You know, Dan John's book and, and Pavel's book, Easy Strength, might as well have been written for fighters from that standpoint that it doesn't need to be that difficult. So what I do isn't really salesy or, hype, you know, a lot of hype or flash and dance. It's just getting these guys to understand what training can do for them getting them indoctrinated to good movement because half of them don't move well outside of that domain. Progressive overload and, and knowing when to scale things back and, and, and let somebody else, you know, their fight coaches take the reins, uh, not getting too wrapped up in it. No, that's awesome. So 
with everything, you know, the one thing from the outside looking in and not really understanding the true nuances of the fight game, what it seems is they're, they're, these guys have 10, 15 different coaches. Yeah. So how does that, in the preparation side, how do you account for or involve with these other men and women working with these fighters uh, to, to make sure that these athletes are moving in the, in the right direction consistently? Yeah, aside from the communication standpoint and trying to get everybody on the same page, which rarely happens, they just, you know, that feel and that space hasn't gotten there yet. Everybody's egos tend to clash, you know, whether it's your jujitsu coach with their striking coach or their striking coach with the strength coach, all these aspects. As a strength coach, what I have to deal with is, you know, just creating adaptable programming. And that's why I tend to use that. Uh, if we're doing eight weeks out, you know, the first week, I'll use a linear base. The first eight, uh, four weeks, I'll use more of a linear based protocol. But as we get closer and closer, I know those other aspects of their uh, preparation continue to increase, right? The amount of time they spend sparring and training in the MMA specific domains, I start to use that flexible, nonlinear approach. So I have to watch them. We have to monitor them. And people, you know, the listeners are, how are you monitoring? You know, I, I'm more of like Bob Alejo's mindset. Like we all always monitor. So Listen, I'm, I'm in a private facility. We have zero budget. You know, I don't, I don't have an Omega Wave. I don't have all this stuff. What I do have is we do a jump mat. We do some basic um, testing protocols in terms of wattage they're able to put out on a time trial on the bike. You know, I'll look at how their cards and their weights progress and their training logs. We'll look at what's going on with their body weight, hydration levels, things like that. I'll use an auto-regulatory kind of periodized approach at times. I try to get feedback from as many areas as I can. I'll do a morning check-in and look at their, you know, their resting heart rate. I'll have a conversation with them. Nothing that's overly nuanced or not one thing that is going to blow anybody's mind, but it's that kind of total package of having that conversation in several different areas and just saying, hey, we were planning to go a little bit heavier today. Obviously, you're smoked. We're going to focus more on, you know, light, moderate loads, a little bit more hypertrophic rep ranges or even moderate rep ranges or vice versa, you know, and so I usually have a plan A, a plan B and a plan C, you know, to to make this a little bit more consolidated. And I have to realize that even though I'd like to be the star of the show or the one that is kind of directing things in their camp, that that is not my place, nor is it the reality. Um, I have to work the best I can with these coaches because the way they view it is that this is a professional fighter. They're not a professional lifter. You stay here and you get them strong after we're done with them. You know what I mean? That's great that you want to help. We don't give a shit about that. Sorry, we don't give a crap about the letters behind your name. You know, you sit here and do this. And so I think that's something that made me grow is I've had to be like, okay, you know, there's no problem with that. I do understand that they're a fighter and I'm going to play my role. But when it does come to be my time, you know, I'm going to do the best I can and make sure that we set them up for success. So it's a big game psychosocially, you know, and as well as physiologically, of trying to get these guys all on the same page. But it's also, to me, one of the things that I enjoy doing most because it tests you as a strength coach at the highest level, in my opinion, because you can't get married to one thing. You can't get married to one model. You can't get married to one program that got you great results here because the next fighter you work with may be trained in an entirely different style of fighting. So what worked well for one fighter is not going to work great for another fighter. They may, you know, one one set of their coaches might teach one fighter to press a little bit more in this kind of tireless close of the gap type style. Another one might be more out in the perimeter and wait for his chance to take him to the mat and do more jujitsu. So 
everything is so in flux and you really got to be keen on on just choosing what's best and and not being bias ridden no that's fantastic and if you want to talk about a background where you've had some different angles to come from nebraska and exos yeah yeah, I think, you know, Exos, Nebraska, Southern Illinois, you know, and even in the working in the military, you know, side within Exos, as well as the NFL and all these things, like I've seen a lot of these variables in play or how a lot of programs do things differently. And I think that people always usually identify a mentor with one person. I identify my mentors with places, you know, and, and their systems and the roadmaps that they use. Everywhere I went did things slightly different. And so I never got married to one way. I was able to come in and say, okay, what does Exos do great, but what was a weakness in their system? What did Nebraska do great, but what were weaknesses in their system? Same thing at Southern Illinois. Hopefully the same thing we're now doing at Unbreakable Performance Center. So I really try to grab, snatch, and, and innovate where I can. You know, I'm certainly not doing anything, like I said, revolutionary. Nobody in our field has an original idea but I can take that wheel that somebody else invented and at least put it on a new wagon or make it spin a little bit more smoothly. And that's what I try to do with these fighters is I say, you know what, this method isn't working, but you know what, I did something over here, you know, at this point in my life that worked really well in a certain uh, um, kind of situation I was in. Let's grab an aspect of that or let's try this. And so you really have to sit down with that old needs analysis at first and you have to revamp that not only at the beginning, but I do that three different times whenever I'm getting a fighter ready. Where are they at at the beginning? Okay, now let's reevaluate. Is this still working? If it's not working, now how can I change it? And I, again, I just think it's a it's been a great test because to be honest, Jay, I got bored as a strength and conditioning coach. Just kind of you, you get into rhythms, right? When you work with certain sports, like I do football or baseball or anything like that. And to now be in a sport where I've got to change up my game plan you know, as, as often as they do when somebody throws a hook and, you know, like you have to be on your toes. And so that's been the fun for me. No, that's fantastic. I, Southern, I didn't know you were a Valley guy, man. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Spookies, baby. Yeah. I spent, uh, I spent a year and a half at, at Indiana state. So it's, uh, always, always great to hear from people who spent some time in the Valley. It is, uh, it's a gem of a league that is really overlooked. Oh, and that was the best. That was one of the best experiences I've had in my career. So I went there as a graduate assistant. Um, Jared Nesland was overseeing the program at the time. And uh, so I was an assistant for football and basketball. But then I was plopped right in a situation where I became the strength coach for a total of eight Olympic sports between swimming and diving and baseball and tennis and golf and even the dance team and the cheerleaders. And so it was funny. One of my buddies had gotten a grad assistantship at an SEC school. And at first I'm like, oh man, like you're going to this big school, all the glamour, you're going to be able to, and, you know, I'm young at the time perspective wise. So I'm, I'm not, and he ended up leaving that school and he barely got to do any programming. He barely got to do anything other than just assist football. And here I was, and, and Jared was nice enough and the situation was set up well enough where boom, your butts in the chair program. And from day one trial by fire, be ready to defend everything that you're doing you know, and uh, he was he was good about that. He'd bring us in and say, why this? Why that? Why this? Why that? But he was also open minded enough that he knew all these different movements and exercises had multiple applications. So where some people think your primary and secondary movements always need to be a, a bench or a deadlift, a squat or these large multi joint movements that can get loaded and loaded and loaded. He knew that for different athletes, 
you know, those movements could be a variety of things, right? And that there was no one way to do it. And so he taught me a lot from a programming standpoint to think more critically. And you got to do that with fighters because with the amount of injuries they have and the asymmetries and how crank, you know, some of their shoulders are just wrecked. You know, they can't always use the classic lifts as their primary methods of overloading. Sometimes you have to work on some other aspects and, and be creative. And that's what I mean by you can't get married to something. So it really annoys me when I hear people arguing over, oh, what's the best exercise or what's the best this or what's the best that. I always want to tell those strength coaches, once you guys have worked with enough sports or enough athletes, you'll learn to ask a better question. Because an exercise that you thought was absolute crap at one point in your career may be very beneficial for another athlete that's been riddled with injury and can't do that option. You know, but that's something that just comes with time, not even time, because it's not an age thing, but it's perspective. And fighting and working with fighters will teach you that in spades that, hey, you'll know a good program because it's right for the athlete and also right for the progression of overload that needs to take place. Well, and then following up on that, because all of this comes back to the relationship that you have with the men and the women that you coach. Yeah. And that being such an interesting subculture in athletics, let's talk about how you build those relationships and how they start to understand and buy in more and more as the progress, as the, the process, you know, continues to roll. Yeah, without a doubt. So this is something I talk about fairly passionately and I'm working on writing a book on. It's always been considered kind of a soft science because people feel like, yeah, well, I think they align it with a lot of, you know, sports psychologists and the knock on sports psych was, well, eh, visualization, this, that, positive thoughts, you know, all this. But really, like the social psych, the psychosocial aspect of trust, which is buy in, right, and connecting with others is not really a soft science, right? Like there's people like Robert Cialdini that's written the book, like Persuasion, and talks all about influence. There's, there's multi-million and billion-dollar corporations that bring people in to study organizational behavior, right? And to be able to pull out and tease out qualities of their best employees so that they can replicate and expand. So I look at coaching and what we do. It's not just about the periodization and the sets and reps and the management of stress. It's organizational behavior, and it's that art of connecting. And athletes usually care about a couple things, right? And, and two of those are they want to know that specificity, meaning like I know you care about me, right? That's number one. But do you know about what I do? And how is what we're going to work on here going to help with what I do? And then utility, right? Utility is like, okay, you may know about what I do, but now tell me how this is going to progress it. It's the same thing they say when you write an email in the subject line. The subject line should entail either utility, hey, this is giving you information that's going to help you, or specificity, this is going to help you in this certain situation, and now let's carry it forward. And that's usually best for grabbing people's attention. So when you're connecting with somebody, it's about, one, getting their attention now, for us in a positive way. It's usually letting them know you care, right? giving them an idea about the program that they're going to take part of, how it's going to help them. Right? It's some kind of level of connection that usually exists outside of ourselves. And then two, right? they need to see authority. They need to see that, okay, this guy says he knows our world. Let's see how well he does. Right? And when you, Whenever I uh, introduce an exercise, I'll talk to them specifically about how this exercise may help them. So, for example, the other day we were doing an ISO hold, a three-position pull-up ISO hold with one of our fighters. And he's like, why isometrics? And one of the things I tell him is, well, listen, think about some of the chokes that you, that you apply. 
right? Think about the arm bar. Think about some of the submission progressions that you go through. All of that is isometric strength. So anytime we do an isometric row, an isometric hold, an isometric, we're trying to teach the neuromuscular system to generate and maintain a certain level of force over a, a period of time. It's amazing how quickly they'll respond. And fighters can get really closed off if you, you know, they view their sport as very different than anything else, any other sport that's out there. And MMA is. There's no other sport that requires such a unique range of qualities in terms of physiological and the psychological. So you try to build that trust. You try to show them, you know, that, uh, you know, you have the specificity in mind of how these things relate and you go from there. And there, there's, there's a big kind of five-step format that you go through. And this is one thing my book's going to talk about. One, as a coach, you need to know yourself. Before you go coach anybody else and before you try to get them on board with what you're doing, you need to identify clearly what your style is. Otherwise, you'll never communicate authentically. And this is what I was talking about with organizational behavior. Companies like Google and Gallup and all these places will do is they'll say, hey, here's our top five contributors in our building or our field or our corporation, we want them to take a personality assessment, whether that's the Hogan assessments, whether that's strength finders, whether that's that classic old school disc assessment. There's another one that exists called insights. And what they'll do is they'll try to help people find out these are your best qualities as an influencer. And when we can identify those better, now we can leverage a communication style to basically target that athlete with a little bit more directness and specificity as opposed to a bunch of fluff, right? And then we've got to know the athlete. And that comes into researching them. Don't just know their wins and losses or what kind of fight style they have. I created Google Doc kind of a system where I have two different documents that I send that are five questions or less. And all these questions are very non-invasive type questions. But what the athlete doesn't realize is they're giving me a lot of information in return. So I may ask them their past favorite coach and why. And they may say, oh, you know, I had a Brazilian, I had a BJJ coach that was really technique oriented and really got down to the individual nuance of what we were doing. Great. That guy has now given me the linchpin and the key to communicate with him because I know that he's very technique oriented. Another gentleman may be focused more on competition. Another gentleman may be focused on, you know, any other number of things. But I use this to kind of pull out their personality profile by asking them targeted questions, by getting their feedback to certain sessions, and by asking them a host of other questions that kind of give me an idea of how do you want to be communicated with, how do you perceive the training, what parts of the training do you like and not like and why, and then that way it gives me that chance to communicate on a deeper level. So once you know yourself, you know the athlete, now you've got to start putting different strategies in play, right? So um, whether that's getting the guys together before the session and, and giving them, hey, today we're working on these qualities. Just like when you worked with your striking coach this morning, more on the elbows and the knees, today we're gonna focus more on power and explosiveness. So when you work with your striking coach, we know that grappling is a piece of what you do, but it's not what you do right then. Guys, same thing. When we're working on power and explosiveness, we're working on moving the barbell fast, moving these weights explosively. I'm not trying to get you tired. Do you understand this different aspect of the game? And then they're, they're able to sit there and say, okay, now this physical preparation thing starting to make sense to me. And it sounds kind of crazy, Jay, but look at any kind of politician or any kind of leader or any kind of influencer. And I say politicians because the election stuff is going on right now. Look at how they talk to people, right? They say, what are these people's concerns and how can I project in a way and give them these emotional payments 
so that they know that I'm the best person to address these concerns and get on board with the things that they want. So that's part of my approach is I go through an assessment of myself and the athlete. I try to align how I need to communicate with that individual. And then I use methods such as uh, metaphors, analogies, emotional payments, um, different kinds of competitions, different kinds of programming that align with their drives. And I try to tease out these qualities that can help them better get on board with it and perceive training as a more positive thing rather than something that gets in their way. So I don't, I don't want to give away too much because it's a, right. right now it's a 176-page book that I'm trying to finish, but it's definitely not a soft science and it's being done in other corporations. There's just not a, nobody's created a template for how we do this perfectly in strength and conditioning, even though some coaches out there do it very, very well already. They just don't recognize what they're doing. Well, then let me ask you a question. And if this goes too far towards it, then we'll just cut this out. Could you give an example of one that was really difficult to get into, like get into that circle and, and how, I don't know, how you got in or how the horse broke? How you or, broke it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. I'm not, I'm not going to give their name. Right. No, somebody, of course. I was somebody I worked with recently and no matter what I did, like, and I won't, you know, I'm a fairly talkative, sometimes people would consider me verbose guy. <laughs> Like it, it depends on the dynamic though, right? Like when I'm home, I'm pretty chill, but I get passionate about what I do and I'm energetic, but around certain athletes and this athlete in general, I, I toned it down. I had heard from other people. His style is if you kind of come on too strong, he's going to get reclusive, real bad childhood, not very receptive to a lot of forms of, of coaching or teaching, just internalizes everything in his own head and kind of lives in an alternative space. But he was here for a while and he had to be here for at least six weeks, which by and large isn't that much time. It's a lot of times it's a lot of time to build a foundation from a physical adaptation, but not a lot of times to make emotional headway into somebody that is that closed off. Right. Mm -hmm. So when people typically say, what is the number one thing I need to do when I have an athlete that is that hard to connect with? I say, you've just got to have patience. There's no icebreaker you know, there's no unique kind of method. It's just going to take time and consistency, just like with that chisel. If you come in, you ask them some questions, you never press ever, right? You take what they give you on the first day, maybe even the first week. And then eventually what you do is you start pushing that a little farther. And you say, okay, I know you told me this. So now how can we build off of that? So he may give me, for example, he gave me a little bit of nuggets, uh, some nuggets into what he does when he doesn't fight. Right. So I know if he can let me into an aspect of his life that doesn't result with his primary identity, which is fighting, I have something to build off of. And he's at least he's at least willing to let me go there. Right. He's given me permission. Um, Roy Roy Sugarman talks about this really, really in depth. And uh, Roy Sugarman is somebody that's at the foremost of neuroscience. And he says, you're only an expert if the athlete invites you into their life. Right. Nobody cares what you have to say unless they invite you. So this person has now said, hey, you know, in my spare time, man, I like playing the guitar, but I don't do it that much. All right. Well, I don't know shit about guitar playing. I appreciate it, but I've never played a guitar. So I sit there and I start saying, OK, this guy takes a lot of pride in fighting. He enjoys the guitar. I'm not going to try to talk to him about much. I just want him to talk to me a little bit about the guitar. So I'll start saying on the outskirts of this thing, it's very non-threatening. Cool. What got you into guitar playing? Uh, what about it? Uh, what about it relaxes you? 
right? What are one of the aspects that you enjoy most? And what I find is he likes, um, he likes the process of mastery. I started to find he's like, you know, the guitar is honest with you just like fighting is. He goes, if I make a mistake on fighting, in fighting, I can blame nobody but myself. I get in a bad position and he applies a choke and I lose. That's my fault for letting that part of my guard down and not being precise enough to understand or, or, or have the foresight to know what he was going to do. If I play the guitar and I miss a string and I miss a note, everybody's going to hear that mistake. It's very honest. And he goes, so I'll sit there. And he spent, he told me he spent an hour and his, an hour and a half sometimes tuning his guitar. So I just sat in here and I started listening to the guitar, listening to the guitar. And eventually, once he kind of started to relax and realize that I'm not somebody that's prying for any outside information, I'm not pushing my agenda too aggressively, he starts to open up. And I say, you know what, man, that's what I like about strength and conditioning. Every set, every rep, every choice I make can either have a negative or positive effect on you or even your perception of me. And so for me, man, this isn't about just getting you stronger, getting you bigger, anything like this. This is a strategy. This is a fight in its own right. And he starts perceiving, he's like, yeah, I guess I can appreciate that. So now, and then he'd say, well, tell me why are we doing six reps here? Tell me why this time under tension here? And slowly but surely, these doors start to open. So what I did is use what I call a three R method approach, right? I come in and I research. I just ask some questions and I keep them on the scope of something that's very safe and, and uh, that I know he's not going to get mad about. Then I start to relate and I say, okay, like now tell me about this. Great. I could see how that applies to something I'm passionate about, right? The nuances of the guitar, the nuances of fighting, the nuances of his programming. And then I start to reframe it or he really does that in his own mind. Now he doesn't really see strength and conditioning as something he has to do. He saw it as a distinct art that added to something that he already does that's very complex and saw it in a completely different light. It was one of the most unique things I had ever kind of uh, had to do or resort to because it taught me a lot about that method in the process. I sat back and I'm like, why did this work? Because I had a buddy that was another strength coach that said, dude, good luck. He's going to close off. And I didn't pat myself on the back, but it did help me better refine a method of there's a way to relate to everybody, right? You typically just have to get outside yourself. And I think that that's something strength and conditioning coaches often do wrong. We're so excited about creating an atmosphere and creating our program, creating our agenda that we often forget that they're not a part of what we do. They're a piece of what we do. And we need that athlete to fully buy in, but they can't, they're not going to do that at the highest level if we just make them do it. At some ages, they will, and some athletes, there's different archetypes that exist. We've all worked with that kind of soldier archetype that'll do exactly what we say. He'll stay after hours. He doesn't need trust. He doesn't need buy-in. But I've been able to identify at least 16 different archetypes of athlete personalities. And you could as well. You could leader. You could think of the soldier. You could think of somebody that's more of a manipulator and somebody that will always try to squeeze by or get by with something. You could think of somebody that's more of a crusader, and they're kind of that you know, uh, passionate or motivational element around the team. You could think of somebody like the novice, somebody that has all the tools, but they're so raw. And if you could just build them. So in my book, I start to identify 16 different archetypes and I give strategies and I've included 16 different strength coaches from around the world to give strategies, Jay, and how they did just that. How did you break the mold? What principle is that based off of? Because otherwise people read these books on buy-in and trust and it's just like get to know your athlete you know tell them that you love them and care about them which is cool like all those books are great 
but people are more complex than that art and a science of coaching there is a science in the art of coaching and that's what i hope to kind of tease out you know in this book and and give people more of a playbook of how to do those things that's awesome so there's anecdotal examples and evidence as to different ways of showing so much someone how much you care because we know that they don't care how much you know until they know how much you do anyway no, and what are we doing? What are we doing about, you know, we're sitting here and talk about monitoring and individualizing the programs, but we don't take into account the individuals themselves on a psychosocial standpoint. In my Excel spreadsheet, the same place where I have their reactive strength index info, their strength based info, their agility based info, anything like that, I also have a personality profile that'll talk about five main drives. And again, we'll talk about this a little bit in the book. But certain drives, certain communication methods, certain aspects about their background, but a personality profile that gives people an idea of how to communicate because we we act like, hey, man, we got to be responsible. We got to make sure that our programs line up with a whole host of things. Well, why are our communication methods any different? You know what I mean? Like, why would I communicate? I'm about to train two uh, military operators. One's a Green Beret and and one was a Marine. I'm about to train them in an hour. I am not communicating them with the same the same uh, in the same way that I communicated with my free agent group, uh, you know, at 10 a.m. And I'm not communicating them with the same way that I did another. You know what I mean? Everybody's a little bit different, but we all expect to just be able to be uniform examples of ourselves. When in reality, you can be you, like be genuine, be authentic, be J. But there's volume knobs on things for a reason. Sometimes you turn it up. Sometimes you turn it down. Sometimes you find a new station. But I think people get stuck on that, Jay, because there's no one piece of literature that somebody can hug and hold tightly to and say, oh, like this is the method, you know, just like squats can enhance vertical jump and speed like, you know, nobody has that. But again, we we talk about how we're multidisciplinary, but don't read strength and conditioning literature for everything. Go out and read the journal Behavioral Psychology. Go and read a book about how a business manifested one of the, the greatest turnaround right, in, in corporate history. All these things start with getting a better grasp on their people and their culture. And there's plenty of evidence out there that, that shows how psychology, how perception, how all these things alter behavior. That, that stuff's not hard to find. People just keep waiting for Dr. Gregory Hoff to publish it. You know what yeah. I mean? And I like, you know what I mean? Like you're multidisciplinary, get out of your world. And so it may annoy some people that I talk about it passionately, but I don't really care. Cause that's, that's the nature that if you ask most great strength coaches, they're going to tell you, yeah, yeah, this thing ain't all about sets and reps. This thing isn't. And sometimes I feel like I relate more to strength coaches from 30 years ago than I do the ones today that keep trying to find this one little physiological bullet that is responsible for transformation when, that ain't always the case. No, and I'll tell you what, man. The book sounds awesome because it is such a huge impact on everything that we do on a daily basis. And, and it could even go, you know, when you leave the private sector and you're talking about working at an institution. I mean, this is communication and buy-in from your administration to the coaches that you work with to, you know, the, the staff members you're involved with, your sports medicine team, on top of that with the student-athletes. And it's, it's an interesting an exciting product that I think is going to be really cool and extremely impactful because you're right. I mean, especially like 
the 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 younger coaches get, I think that they 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 tend to see a lot of the glitz and the glam and the neat stuff, you know. Um, but they don't understand that for a real long time it was all about just developing relationships and then that would lead to getting people better. Um, so it's it's exciting. I think that's going to be sweet, man. I can't wait for this thing to come out. It's uh, it's 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 something that we need. Yeah, I appreciate it. I, I think so, you know, and the thing I've got to, you know, and I make progress daily right now. My schedule slam, but the goal is to have it out by the end of the year. But I think I finally realized I wasn't crazy when I, cause I made a presentation that I give fairly often about this stuff. It's like, it's a 10,000 foot view, but I've now given that presentation in six different countries soon to be soon to be seven when I go to Australia and present it for the ASCA and I'm giving it in China as well. And everybody you know, when I first gave it total transparency, I'm like, I wonder how people are going to perceive this. Cause previously I'd spoke on the things we all speak on program design or recovery or agility or speed or what have you. And this was the first time I was kind of diving outside that realm. And the first time I felt like I wasn't crazy was when a strength coach literally came up to me and I don't care how silly this sounds to any listener. Like this is, this was cool. And somebody can relate to this. And his eyes were literally welled up. And he was like, I needed this. And I said, well, you know, cool. Like, thank you. Like, what do you mean? And he's like, I just had been in a situation where he's like, he had basically lost his passion for strength and conditioning because he just like, uh, he felt like he was in a rut. He was looking for something else that wasn't answered by, you know, all the things that we always keep chasing. And he's like, this reminded me of why I do it. And it's, and it gave me ideas and steps at how I can be better at a completely different aspect of coaching. And I needed that in my life right now. And I gave it at the NSCA combat clinic. And so it's my favorite presentation to give. It's certainly not perfect. You know, it can always get better, but it, it touches, it seems like the reaction from the community is clear that they need it. So now I just got to meet those expectations of writing a book that's worth a shit for them to read. Um, but I'm working, I'm working hard at it. Well, I'll tell you what, man, if it's, if this is the tip of the iceberg, I can't wait to see how deep the ice goes because this is really like a lot of mind-opening topics and a lot of really big-time ideas that you shared with everybody today. I, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time and being so open and honest about you know the products you're putting out and what you're doing and, and a different way that a lot of us, man, like, we, we overlook it and we're not good at it. And it's something that we can be a lot better at to help our kids get better. I, I, Brett, thank you so much for sharing all this with, with us today, man. I, uh, I can't wait to get this up. People are going to absolutely love this. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Jay. Thanks for having me. It's my honor, man. Yeah, man. Well, we'll be in touch really soon, man. Absolutely. And a huge thank you to Unbreakable Performance Center's Brett Bartholomew for taking the time out and sharing with us today. It was an absolutely fantastic talk, open and honest sharing, giving specific examples, and then even sharing information that he's going to be putting in his book that's coming out towards the end of the year. Uh, I can't thank Brett enough for the time. It was absolutely fantastic. You know, a little bit different of a topic than what we normally cover, but I think that it's one that really does need to be harped on more and brought to the forefront more. And I think that this product he's putting out is something that we really need. And I'm really excited to see it. I can't wait to get my hands on a copy. It's uh, it's, it's really, I'm sure that it's going to be a game changer for what, what we all do here in the performance realm. And guys, as always, if you enjoyed the conversation 
and you found the information useful, please share it in the social media outlet of your, of your choice. Tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, whatever it may be. Just trying to get information out there to coaches, guys, and hopefully you guys enjoy these talks and, and, and are finding some, some use from them. But most importantly, thank you guys for listening and thank you for being part of everything we're doing here at Central Virginia Sport Performance. We will be back next week with another awesome guest. We will see you then.